0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. As we're recording this, we've logged bonus episodes on the Jeopardy! all-time championship competition, our reactions to the Oscar nominations, and more. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's
1: very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
0: being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with
1: Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias,
0: and Genevieve Kosky. For our next two episodes, we're digging down into the trenches and slogging through the mud and the blood of World War One with two films about young soldiers in desperate situations. And as a special nod to one of the films we're about to discuss, we're going to have this conversation in continuous real time. Wait. What You heard me. This is going to be one of the most ambitious, expensive podcast episodes ever produced. It's going to be breathtaking. We're going to talk about these movies in what seems like an unbroken, flowing stream rather than constantly cutting away from this conversation.
1: The Tasha, you know, that's pretty normal for a podcast. Wait, what?
2: Yeah, basically, we just sit down and have these conversations about film with each other in real time. I mean, I tweak them a little to remove conversational dead ends and verbal baubles, but the edits are usually pretty much invisible, and the end result always comes out pretty much like a real-time continuous exchange. That isn't really all that innovative, or expensive for that matter.
0: <laughs> Next, you'll be telling me it's, uh, it's pretty standard for podcast listeners to not know who's going to die during an episode, or which one of our podcasts is going to be forced to murder somebody in a moment of extreme danger.
3: Uh, look, we argue sometimes, but I hope none of us is planning to kill anyone here at the table.
1: Well, speak for yourself, Keith, because if Tasha keeps needling me about how much he hates tropical malady...
2: We're just talking about war movies tonight, Tasha. We're not actually going to war, and we're not trying to simulate the experience of stumbling through a war, unlike the two films we're here to talk about.
0: Fine, you seem to know a lot about what's going on. Why don't you set us up for this week's big, unpredictable, real-time battle?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to.
0: That's not a very belligerent, warlike attitude.
2: Peter Weir's 1981 film Gallipoli follows a pair of young Australian men who join the war effort out of a mixture of patriotism, pride, and recklessness, and wind up in the trenches on the Turkish peninsula of Gallipoli during a particularly horrific moment in a tragic battle there. Sam Mendes' current film 1917, which was just nominated for 10 Academy Awards, similarly takes place during a World War I battle and logs time among the weary men in the trenches there. But where Gallipoli is a kind of mosaic, jumping around to establish its characters' lives and the pressures and hopes that take them to war, Mendez drops viewers into the middle of the conflict and introduces his two young protagonists as they set out on a mission that he presents in real time, in a story carefully crafted to appear as if it's one continuous shot. These are two different stories about young men in World War I, but they both center on surprisingly young men delivering crucial messages, trying to save lives with key
0: intel for the much older commanders
2: sending thousands of boys like them into battle.
0: And in both films, time hangs heavily over the characters in a variety of ways. As the clocks run down, both sets of friends get pushed relentlessly closer to a final bloody conflict. That's why we all thought time was so important to this episode that we're going to do it all in one unbroken take... Wait, wait, Genevieve, are you fading me out and bringing up the music for a break? How is anybody?
3: Now on the spot. One, two, one, two, one, two. What are your legs?
1: Springs. Steel springs. What are they going to do? Hold me down the track.
3: How fast can you run? As fast as a leopard. How fast are you going to run? As fast as a leopard. Then let's see you do it.
0: When Peter Weir discusses his 1981 film Gallipoli, he makes the process of cracking the story sound a lot like the structure of the story itself. He started off with an idea about a World War I narrative, and a friend pointed him toward the Australian involvement at Gallipoli, the Turkish peninsula where some key battles took place, as Britain and its allies attempted to knock Turkey out of the war, and lost a quarter of a million soldiers before acknowledging defeat and withdrawing. A year later, while in Britain for the premiere of his film Picnic at Hanging Rock, Weir took a side trip to the battlefield, where he says he wandered around for two days among the detritus of a war from 60 years earlier, among belts and bones and shells from the war. He even found an unbroken bottle of fruit salts, which we see in his final film, a quaint gift from a lady's auxiliary overseas, sent at random to a young soldier who finds it hilariously off-base and irrelevant to his current life. The setting and the sense of the lives lived and lost on that spot inspired Weir, but he says it still took years to crack what the film should actually be, and the development process, like the film itself, happened in short, scattered pieces. He says he and screenwriter David Williamson initially wanted to start with the character's enlistment in 1914 and tell the story up to the evacuation of Gallipoli in 1915, but their drafts felt incomplete and out of focus. Weir told Literature Film Quarterly in 1981, We were not getting at what this thing was, the burning center that made Gallipoli a legend. I could never find the answers in any books, and it certainly wasn't evolving in any of our drafts. So we put the legend to one side, and simply made up a story about two young men, really got to know them, where they came from, what happened to them along the way, spent more time getting to the battle, and less time on the battlefield. The draft fell into place. By approaching the subject obliquely, I think we had come as close to touching the source of the myth as we could. I think there's a Chinese proverb. It's not the arriving at one's destination, but the journey that matters. Gallipoli is about two young men on the road to adventure, how they crossed continents and great oceans, climbed the pyramids, and walked through the ancient sands of Egypt and the deserts of the outback to their appointment with destiny at Gallipoli. Compared to Sam Mendes's World War I drama 1917, which we'll talk about next week, Gallipoli may seem scattered as it jumps around through incidents in the lives of two young men—18-year-old stockman and racing champ Archie Hamilton, played by newcomer Mark Lee, and railway worker and runner Frank Dunn, played by a startlingly young Mel Gibson. The two briefly meet at a local festival, where Archie is out to break a speed record, and Frank is just hoping to bet on himself and win enough money to start a small business but he loses the race and winds up broke, and he tags along with Archie, who's running away from home and hoping to join the military. Archie is a patriot, full of idealistic dreams about the glory of war, while Frank just lets himself be needled into enlisting because Archie's accusations of cowardice hurt his pride, and because Archie's conviction is infectious. They're separated, and then reunited, so they both end up traveling the world on their way to Gallipoli. Gallipoli is a coming-of-age movie, and for one of those two characters, an ending-of-age movie but it's also an illustration of an ideal from Australian culture, one that has parallels in other countries, but maybe not as precise a term overseas. The larrikin streak, that is the impulse among young men to be brash, rowdy, and anti-authoritarian, but in a well-meaning playful way, was commonly noted in newspaper editorials and literature in the early 1900s. But in World War I specifically, it took on a positive spin for Australian culture as larrikin boys were seen as the national contribution to an international war. Weir specifically captures the larrikin impulse, with his young soldiers mocking the British, racing up the pyramids in Egypt, and tricking their way into an officer's ball. And there's a particular larrikin streak in Archie, who's underage and has to fake his way into the army, with Frank's help and glued-on facial hair. Archie has his deep-seated beliefs about what Australia owes the war effort against the evil Hun, and he can be preachy and judgmental when Frank crosses them. But both characters are also mischievous and boyish, and they seem to see war as a lark until they actually get there. But the tragedy of Gallipoli isn't just that they're betrayed by incompetent commanders and bad communication. It isn't that they trap themselves in this conflict and are left with no way out. It's that up to the end, they're both barely past boyhood, and Weir captures both their sunny hopes and their fears, their courage under fire and the way their conviction shapes them. And by the final scene, both of them are still as we met them in the beginning of that road to adventure, with Archie running as fast as he can and Frank looking for an escape. They're both meant to embody the flower of Australian youth as lively young men with good hearts and the best intentions. The tragedy isn't where the larrikin spirit leads them. It's the way they embody so many other young men with the same spirits led to the same awful, inevitable dead end.
1: <laughs> what do you think you're doing? Uh,
2: we might sir.
0: enthusiastic. So did you guys have any past relationship to Gallipoli?
1: I mean, I, ha- I have a pretty strong relationship to this film and to Peter Weir in general. I think Peter Weir is a filmmaker who should be talked about as just an absolute master and isn't quite as much for my taste. I think he's, he's made a lot of great films. Gallipoli I would include among them. I, you know, And the other thing I remember about Gallipoli, I mean, Gallipoli I saw, it had been a while since I'd seen it. I, I, uh, I feel like I might have reviewed it for... Uh, on dvd or something for one of our publications so maybe not that long ago but but my feeling is that it's got you know one of the all-time great powerful endings of a film ever basically it just it kills me every single time i see it and this time i watched it in the context of a whole bunch of other films about world war one i wrote a piece for the guardian connected to 1917 about sort of the history of films about that war. And uh glibly just, it fits so well into that tradition about eager young men who are hopped up on nationalism and who ultimately fall prey to you know, the catastrophic decisions and arrogance of their leaders. That is the story of World War One, And you, you see that story played out again and again in movies like All Quiet on the Western Front and The in the Big Parade and Paths of Glory. I mean, all of the, that's what the subject of these films are. And so uh, it was nice to see Gallipoli following that tradition and then also do things a little bit differently by giving you just – this little bit of battle at the end. And it's so effective that way to uh, shorten as Peter, Weir I guess you, you told the story in your intro about how the script came together. It feels so right that the amount of time they're actually in battle. And you can, if you could even call it, that is a couple minutes. It's the end of the movie, basically in, in terms of, you know, they just comes out of a, uh, comes out of the trenches when they shouldn't come out of the trenches and everyone gets mowed down and that's the movie. So, and that, and that really, you see that happen so often in World War 1 movies where where the, you get the, all this time in the trenches and then uh you know you poke your head out and you're up against all sorts of you know machine gun nests and you don't get very far so I don't know I'm rambling but I do think it's a it's a very powerful film.
2: I'm like at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from Scott I had pretty much no experience with Gallipoli I knew it by name I think I knew it was a, a war movie and that's about it but uh, after watching this you know I'm kind of re- regretting that fact because I really enjoyed this movie and I was kind of surprised at, at the extent to which I enjoyed it um, I was fully expecting to kind of come out of it with this sort of like I respected what I was going for but it just wasn't for me type of type of reaction which is um kind of what I end up having with a lot of war movies or or movies that are playing in the the realm that I assumed Gallipoli was playing in but um you know as as you note it really only becomes a quote unquote traditional war movie in the last 20 minutes or so but um everything leading up to that I was, I was really disoriented watching this movie in a in a pleasant way because it's a I didn't know what I was seeing. Like, what this is like a sports movie? No, it's a, it's a training movie. Like, and there, there, I was like, when are we getting to the fireworks factory? Even though I didn't really <laughs> want to get to the fireworks factory so much, but like, it's just really enjoyable in a lot of like it's a beautiful film to look at mm-hmm. the photography the australian landscapes the cairo portion that shot on the pyramids you know and even in the once once they get to gallipoli that underwater shot i feel like we we're gonna have to talk about that but it, it was just like it it really uh, drew me in and the effect of that was when i got to that final shot and that abrupt ending, it just really, really threw me for a loop. And it was it was one of those experiences where I kind of just sat quietly through the credits and I had to process it. I'm still kind of processing and I only watched it last night. But yeah, this was a, a really kind of surprising and enlightening uh, viewing experience for me.
3: So, I guess I'm kind of in the middle here because I'm with Scott in that Peter, I think Peter Weir is a great filmmaker who's not talked about enough. Uh, I think he's made a number of just stone cold masterpieces. Uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock is. A movie if you haven't seen it's haunted me ever since i've seen it uh, i think fearless is is is, is one of those two i think that's a movie not, a, not enough people saw or, or talk about anymore but it's an incredibly powerful movie and I, and I had this film to that list but i also just saw it for the first time <laughs> i was doing oh, my wow. own kind of war movie uh article and uh, i just hadn't gotten around to this one and and yeah it's a, it's a great movie and and i and i know we're going to dig into precisely the ways it, which it's great but i think both of you touched on Part of what makes it so powerful is all the time you spend with these these boys. I'll just call them boys. They are boys, you know. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, before you get there, and how brief the the battle is, and and I think it's so pointed. But I mean, you know, the battle at the end, the, the sense that this is death. I mean, no matter what they do, everyone doing this is going to die. There's no chance. But it's part of the process of war, and and like I think it's you know the rare war movie that tells the truth about war by showing things like that. That part of command is sending people. That you know, are going to die to serve a larger purpose. I, I kept thinking of the chapter in um, *Cavalier and Clay* where they're talking about it. It's the the fl- the flag signaler and how the average age, you know, average time they live is like 42 seconds. So they're just continually sending people out to die to serve this one part of the war, and it's it's part of the horrible calculus of warfare. But yeah, I was I was blown away by seeing this, and I'm happy we're talking about it. I wasn't expecting to have. It was one of those movies that I saw and wrote what I needed to write about it, and then I had no one to talk to about it. So hmm. guys, I'm so glad I'm here. Most I want to find out, why is that donkey laughing? I never really got that, that <laughs> postcard, but uh, I, we can get into that later, I guess. <laughs>
0: uh, I first saw Gallipoli in college, and I just I remembered it as a, a spectacularly powerful and moving film. And re-watching it, I had the same sort of, when do we get to the fireworks factory f- feeling, but it wasn't, when do we get to any specific action beat? It was, like, when do we get to the tremendously moving part? I didn't remember most of the incident from this movie. I just remembered the emotional shock of it. And as we're just kind of like larripping through like all of these different little adventurelets. Uh, I just I just kept thinking like none of this has the impact that I remember uh, and I felt a little a little dismissive about some of it along the way it reminded me a lot of the the boys cutting up uh, in mash which we talked about endlessly especially mm-hmm. the sequence where uh, four of the soldiers led by Mel Gibson's character basically harass and bully an Egyptian shopkeeper and then find out they've they've harassed and bullied the wrong man except they most of them don't know and it's very clear that they're not actually going to do anything about it. But the film just picks up. It's a big rolling stone. It it picks up power and impact as it goes forward. And then you get to that ending and you realize where it's been going all that time. It reminds me in that sense of Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, there's a lot of stuff in the movie that's just sort of okay. That's interesting, but why is it here? And then you get to the end and you realize why everything's there. You realize the impact of the cumulative effect of getting to know these characters and then seeing what becomes of them. And I once again, I came out of it very moved.
1: Yeah, once the Adagio for Strings kicks in five minutes before the mm-hmm. end of the movie, and just and you know kind of what's what's coming and you get all this preparation that everyone is making to die basically there's you get little bits of like a letter to a loved one you've got someone putting their ring on on the hilt of a knife till it's left against the trenches for somebody else to pick up and there's just there's like this almost like the music gives it almost like this the quality of like a, a religious or spiritual ritual that they're all having to go through before um this terrible inevitability it kills me I just it's the, it's so moving and like and of course the end is you know I mean that's the famous little final shot which became the poster for the movie
0: what a strange thing to do, to do like- yeah why would I mean, you do but, that but it's
1: just you know it's clear what that significance is what the significance of that is and how it matches up with him you know crossing the finish line I guess as a, as a runner that stance mm-hmm. but whatever it's fucking great <laughs> it's beautiful <laughs> it's so beautiful to end, to end on that freeze frame
2: well, mm-hmm. and that music that you mentioned it underlined for me that this is a crescendo like the whole movie has just been building and building and building. And yet I think you really see that in the way that the war like the reality of war just gets closer and closer and more in focus as the film progresses. Cause like it, it opens with, you know, these guys kind of reading about Gallipoli in the paper and, and talking about it and talking about whether they do or don't want to join up. And then, you know, we get closer to it as we get to Perth and the actual recruitment. And then we get a little closer to it in Cairo with the training in the, in the war games. And then we even all the way up to the landing on the beach of Gallipoli, like, even though they're actually in the thick of it at that point there's still this sort of sense of almost frivolity like, like you know like there's definitely explosions there's like shells constantly going in the background but everyone's still like like Frank's looking for bacon like he was saying, you know there there's still this like playfulness or this isn't really real sense to it right up until that last sequence you know when they're actually going out of the trench and it's like oh this is the moment where it becomes real and that that really does feel like the Emotional center of the movie, like the slow dawning of the realization of what war really is and what it really means to die for your country, uh, once you're actually doing it and not reading about it in the paper.
0: There's a to degree to which the Adagio for String sequence, I didn't, I didn't entirely take it as, kind of a like reaching an emotional climax of the movie, I took it almost as a reminder. Like, this is a very rarefied thing. Like, the fact that Major Barton has his own record player, like a a kind of ridiculous luxury at the uh, edge of the front line. And he's playing this music and singing along with it, and people keep kind of, like, peering into uh, his little HQ, like, looking at him like he's crazy. This is, like, listening to classical music is kind of an older man's thing and, and kind of an upper class man's thing and they they can't really relate to it. And you put that in contrast with all of the things you see Frank and Archie doing throughout the film. You know, laughing at a, a picture of male genitals during a briefing on sexually transmitted diseases or clowning around with each other and, and like breaking into an officer's party in order to guzzle down free free champagne. Like all of these these games are like young man's games. And then you get just this brief view of like, an older man's life, an older man's love, an older man's marriage, an older man's entertainment. And it's a reminder that they're never going to reach that age themselves. Mm-hmm. They're never going to come to a place where they're going to like appreciate the same kind of things or live the same kind of lives. Maybe Frank will. Maybe he survives the battle. Maybe he takes the message back. He's the one who survives to tell uh, the leadership, well, it didn't work out and everyone's dead. Uh, but for Archie, the the story ends here. He's never going to be a major barbarian. And he's never going to, you know, kiss a uh, kind of gentle but homely looking wife who's going to like beg him to come back. Like none of these things are, are prospects for him.
1: And imagine how what Frank is coming back with, too. I mean, like say Frank survives. What memories does he have? I mean, he's just how can you not be broken by what you've experienced in his? I mean, that, you know, the end of that film with his reaction when he doesn't make it, when he can't get the message across, when that wave goes anyway, it just pierces the heart. You
2: know? And his motivations for being there are so distinct from Archie's. and so you, you can kind of extrapolate how he would uh, walk away from this battle differently than Archie would. Obviously Archie doesn't, but if the, if the roles were were reversed, like what's interesting about Frank is, again, his, his motivations for the war because he spends a, a good portion of the the first act of this movie saying he he doesn't want to do it and even when Archie is like flat out telling him he should join the war effort can we discuss amongst ourselves what what's the turning point for Frank like what 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 makes him decide this is what he wants to do what's his real motivation here
3: I think it ultimately feels like he doesn't have anything better to do yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, there is some of that. There's, I think, there's definitely some of him being motivated by Archie calling him a coward out in the the dried up desert. But I think, to some degree, the the real turning point is when the light horse turns him away when he Mm, can't mount up a horse and they mock him and he sees like his this younger boy go off to do something that he's been told he's not good enough to do, I don't think he would immediately go off and enlist without that. But then when he runs into his friends and and they're all headed off to do it, like here's here's an outfit he knows he can get into. He can Mm -hmm. be doing something with his pals, but he can also kind of prove that he's good enough after having been told in no uncertain terms, oh, you're not good enough and you're not as good as this like, Younger boy who believes so much stronger, stronger than you do. I
2: agree. I think that's like what pushes him over the edge. But I think his tune starts to change when they're at that cattle stop after crossing the the lake bed and uh, meeting the man with the camel. That whole that whole adve- adventure, and Archie is talking about how they're traveling to Perth to join up, or how he is. And he gets like toasted and all the, and the the pretty girls are sort of looking at him admiringly. And you kind of have this look at Frank looking kind of like left out or, or jealous, you know, that felt to me that that was where Frank's sort of engagement with the idea of actually joining up begins and then getting turned away from the light horse, I'm sure amplified it more and then hooking up with his mates uh, in the infantry, I think is just what pushed it
0: over for him but it gives him uh, a it gives him a method Uh, he's probably possibly already got the motive but it gives him a method so i mean this is a very episodic movie there are all of these little bits and pieces uh there's the potentially fatal walk across the the river pan there's the whole uh enlistment the enlistment segment there's the egypt segment with all of its different parts like are there particular parts of this that that work or don't work for you uh, particularly strongly
1: every every piece works and counts and matters you know because it is still building something it's still building this friendship between the two of them and it is leading us slowly and inexorably to the end and all those elements are so distinct you know i mean that you know i mean to think about like I mean, that's a 50-mile trek that they end up taking to Perth across that lake bed. And, and, and that encounter with the camel driver is maybe is one of the most important things in the film because they...
2: He doesn't even know there's a war on. <laughs> right, he doesn't know there's a war on. And
1: then, and then you know, Archie's, Archie's thing is like, you know what, you know, the Germans could beat come us here. over there and then come mm-hmm. over... Here the, the camel driver's like, they're welcome to it, right? This is like, you look around and it's just, it's just arid uh, desert. So it's not really, it's such an absurd thing to think about. But I mean, this is just, you know, I think the, the, what the film kind of gets at is just how available young people like this are to become pawns in this, in whatever game their leaders are, are trying to play i mean that you, you can this is a call to adventure right i mean if, even if you know archie has a little bit more of a mission in mind i mean he he wants to fight for his country but for frank it's like it is it's it's that classic call to adventure and and uh archie's doing it and um you know he kind of gets swept up in it as well i mean i think it's it's very it becomes very easy to find People like this. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of like the I saw All Quiet on the Western Front, the 1930 film about World War One, and that that film is all about this. You know, teach starts with a teacher, a German teacher who's who's kind of rallying his his male students to join the fight, and uh, they don't know anything. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's what's at stake. But the, but it's it's for their country, and all the other boys are doing it, and some of the some of the more reluctant ones are kind of swept along. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the story about how wars happen, and 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 how. Bodies are supplied uh, for these these types of fights, right?
3: Yeah, and the way it's dressed up on on the home front is as saying that you know it's your patriotic duty to do this too. You know, and I'm not an expert on Australian history, but my sense is that this was a kind of a turning point in independence in the sense that australia needed to be an independent country and not serve the interests of of great britain if i'm and does anyone know more about that than i do
2: i did a little research about it and yeah i did want to jump into to to talk about that because like there is a a slightly different context here and that the gallipoli campaign came just 14 years after the federation of australia so it's considered sort of one of the first examples of Australians participating in an event as Australians, rather than uh, a bunch of of commonwealths, you know, and it's as I understand it from from my reading, and if we have any Australian listeners, I would would love to hear more context about this. But it sounds like this is, uh, the Gallipoli campaign is sort of considered a big moment in the uh, nationhood of Australia. And it's sort of wrapped up in what Tasha was talking about of larrikinism and mateship, which is another uh, apparently key element of of the Australian national identity and which is certainly a a big part of of this movie as well. The idea of mateship in Australia and mate is kind of more than just a friend. It's uh, a term that implies a sense of shared experience, mutual respect and unconditional assistance, which I think we definitely see between. Frank and Archie but also between Frank and his his other pals uh, Snowy and uh, what, I don't I forget the bill other name Snowy. Yeah. So yeah, like as a World War 1 story, this is kind of maybe not unique but different from uh, I think a lot of the other World War 1 movies that we've that we've seen just in terms of what this specific point in history means to Australian history.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of maybe a crucial point too in contrast with some some of these with other World War One movies which are really wholly bleak and cynical about the entire affair, that the sacrifices that these boys make are not in vain, that there's something that there's a spirit or there's there's something that they that, that they embody that is inspiring and, and is something constructive that the country could kind of carry forward after mm-hmm. this unfortunate you know event
2: you kind of see it play out again going back to that scene with the the camel driver is it a camel or a dromedary
0: I, I, I never got a this? good look at its back uh, we, yeah. we, <laughs> it's we, kinda, we see yeah. it off in the the distance he's, and he's then...
1: credited as a camel driver
0: <laughs>
2: okay, <laughs> okay.
1: dromedary we'll,
0: we'll, we'll driver not necessarily <laughs> much considered a thing
2: yeah uh, but <laughs> this older guy who you know is uh, kind of rooted in this pre-unification period of Australia and you know doesn't have really an, an understanding of the patriotism that Archie is carrying into this this desire to join up. And not not even really patriotism. It it is more of a call to adventure that seems to be kind of wrapped up in the Australian identity to a certain extent as well. But sort of the idea of asserting himself as an Australian rather than you know, a, a guy from the bush.
0: I do want to go back to this idea of uh, stronger and weaker segments, um, but because in spite right. of what Scott said kind of about how all of these uh, pieces work equally, I, I just, for me, it, that's not true. Some of the strongest ones, I think, the race across the Outback with one man on a horse and one man on foot, I, I think is just so key to understanding who Archie is, to understanding how quickly he takes a slight as a challenge and how quickly he is to to take up a cause, even if it's one that's damaging to him, that's self-destructive, that's uh, a really terrible idea. And yet how much heart he has I mean he can he finishes that race with his feet torn up. he wins because the other man falls off his horse. but you know he he just he rises to the occasion and he hurts himself dreadfully in the process, and it' just it seems a foot
3: shot man, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, didn't
0: I didn't like that. It seems like such a great introduction to a character, but also just a, like a great little bit of of strange adventure. Like it just an, a really exciting sequence, and the trudge across the dried up lake feels so much like something out of Lawrence of Arabia. You know that the the crossing the desert scene in Lawrence of Arabia. It's kind of terrifying in a way that for me, even the war sequences aren't. Again, there's just the sense of, I'm going to do what I've decided to do, and I'm not going to let nature stop me. And as Archie repeatedly finds that nature can indeed stop him, there's kind of a reconsideration, but not much of a dimming of spirits. And then that sequence that uh, Genevieve mentioned, where everybody strips down and jumps into the water, and then they're just sort of dealing with shelling, uh, and trying to stay underwater in order to avoid getting getting shot, like. What a strange sequence, but how memorably shot!
2: Yeah, and why did why did he get money at the end of it? I didn't understand the whole in- insurance uh, element of it or betting. Element. I
0: didn't think it was very clearly explained. My understanding was that they had a bet on that was basically the last man to come up out of the water would win the win the pot, and everybody dumped their money in, but they weren't expecting the shelling. Like it, it really plays out because of the lack of explanation. Like it's like, hey, first man to get shot gets the pot yeah but i don't think that's the case i it seems like they were trying to stay underwater and then when uh, suddenly bullets began flying, they had to stay underwater. And it seemed like they just gave the pot to the man that got wounded, kind of as a sort of a, a mm-hmm. larkish compensation. It that was my sense, too. Yeah, like a little yeah. bit of uh, larrikinism or yeah. a little bit of mateship, if you like. <laughs> just, uh, hey, we we didn't mean for this to get anybody hurt. And you know, here, what what the heck, just in the spirit of camaraderie, you can have the money. There's Here's money you're going to die before you can spend.
3: We're just bored kids having fun, right?
0: he can uh, send that money back to back home in exchange for and, and buy himself a case of fruit salts
2: <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question about, you know, if there are any segments that that maybe don't work as well as others, uh, Tasha, I will say that the, I don't want to say the Cairo segment goes on too long because like length and pacing is not this movie's problem, but I feel like I didn't need to spend quite so much time in the bazaars and brothels of Cairo with, with that group of guys there's a lot in the Cairo uh, scenes that are amazing. The, the race up the pyramids and that that shot of them at the top and them carving their names into the pyramids together. You know, like I all of that I love. I, I guess maybe what I'm kind of dancing around is the connection between Archie and Frank is so strong. And then we have this other side element of Frank's other mates that I mentioned, Snowy, Barney, and Billy. And that sequence is kind of a lot about... Frank's connection with them. And it feels a little like we're just setting the tables so that they can die later in hindsight. You know, like, I I don't know how necessary that dynamic is in the context of what the movie is achieving uh, with Frank and Archie. But it's a minor complaint.
3: I liked all the the local color. I liked all the sort of period detail and, and what that culture was of soldiers in Egypt at the time. But also, I, I like the question of sort of uh, which one is it that's reluctant to, to go to the prostitute? Is, is Snowy? I, yes, yeah, I snow, Snowy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's the you know kind of raises the question like what what does virtue mean uh, in the face of of imminent death? You too, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, and it's kind of touching that that he would hold, try to hold on to that and, and perhaps naive of him to try to hold on to that in this moment when well when death's right right around the corner
0: and we don't know whether he dies but if he does yeah. he dies a virgin sure. and and you know was proud of it because he was uh, he, probably dies. <laughs> he was he was able to like look his his bride in the face on his wedding night which he didn't think anybody else would be able to I for me the the Cairo scenes do go on a little long but I found them fascinating like even if they're maybe a little too draggy or a little too much focus away from from the Archie Frank relationship for the film they're just so fascinating in a historical sense you know there's just a, there's a real sense that we're really did get into the bazaars and brothels of Egypt at the time and you know even if he's recreating something from from much earlier in the century Like what a, what a strange time. Like, it just I found myself thinking like i 'm never going to go there, like Egypt has been on and off unsafe for tourists for for American tourists for quite a while, and these days they don't i don 't believe they let you run up the pyramids and carve your name on them
2: like, or or play rugby among the pyramids or,
0: or play rugby among space. them like just what a what a different era and what an interesting portrait of it. I found it fascinating in the way our old friend Noel Murray has always found fascinating, for instance. Uh, 70s movies that wander through uh, Times Square in New York. Mm. You know, you're just... You're seeing a recreation of a specific thing or a fictional version of a specific thing but all around you is a, a backdrop of a real place that's in some ways gone and that you're never going to see again so you know as, as much as i get a little tired of them uh, banging around on on mules singing songs about how awesome they were i thought mm-hmm. i just thought every moment of that film was uh, a fascinating little bit of historical tourism
1: and he likes to be outside, <laughs> Peter Weir. You know, he <laughs> likes to, he's, he, this is the director of uh, Master and Commander of, of, Mosquito Coast of the Year of Living injury of the Last Wave of Picking pick and Hanging Rock. This is w- a guy who's witness, outside for that reason. For witness, that matter, too, right? I exactly. Remember. You know these. You know Dead Poet Society, as much as that is inside. The Truman Show. The, oh wait. <laughs> yeah, that's a little more indoors, but <laughs> but 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 he he, he certainly has a, a, a beautiful eye uh, and um and, even and
3: Green Card is set largely in a greenhouse.
1: That's not true. You've, have you seen Green Card? I've seen Green Card. Okay. <laughs> there's a whole greenhouse. <laughs> this they a the, the big apartment with a greenhouse. Yeah, that's so. the reason why they why that relationship. That film is underrated, by mm, the way. That is it's, it's fine. is so is it's so. Wait, back me up with Genevieve on this Green Card. Underrated.
2: Wait, Green Card. I've seen
1: that with Annie McDowell and Gerard Depardieu.
2: Oh, at um, at the she's, height she's of his verdureness.
1: Uh, you know,
2: I it's been so long. I don't feel like I can. Uh, <laughs> oh, like I can say it's definitively. Underrated. I'm sorry,
0: <laughs> um, Scott. You're uh, as you're stumping for we are in general like yeah. uh, the outdoor connection is actually a really good one. You're you're right about uh, I think he might just be a man who loves his natural light and his outdoor yes. settings but i mean what do you see other strong connections between i mean these these are films with very different kind of folk eye. It, this film looks a lot like hanging rock to me just in terms of yeah. the, the very look, like look parched as bleached ha- bleach visuals and like the, just the sense of kind of the exhaustion of being out in, outside in australia but i like do you do you see connections thematically between his work
1: yeah, I mean, well, and also, I mean, look at look at a film like Master and Commander. I mean, that's a- Oh, that's God, a, that's so beautiful. Which is such a master. It's such a great film. I and mean, like, truly one of the great films of the of the century. And again, didn't get the respect that it- I think people love it now.
3: There should be like three sequels it should, to it, though. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a world I, <laughs> I would want my living in.
1: I mean, but but then he- But he has a sense of, you know, historical authenticity is important to him. It's important that there be this, a, uh, a very specific, you know, detail-oriented, authentic- Feel to his work, and uh, it, it, it's there in Gallipoli and Master and Commander, and he's very good. He's just got a good eye. <laughs>
3: The Last Wave, an oh, apocalyptic man. film he, he did right before Gallipoli, or a few years before Gallipoli.
0: Another very bleached looking film, if I recall correctly.
3: Here, here's a question, just so I don't have to get too far off track, but would I like the Truman Show if I saw it now? It just did not do a thing for me. I thought it was I just kind good. of-
0: Oh, you know, man. Uh, having revisited it not terribly long ago, my like, my big feeling, like I never, never loved Jim Carrey as an actor. Yeah. I sometimes so, have. He's so big and so broad and he is acting so hard in that film and i think it's a it's a brilliant movie but i think putting Almost any other actor in that role mm. would have improved that film spectacularly, and then just the places that it goes in terms of the panopticon of life and the lack of expectation of privacy and uh, the way we consider other people's lives are, are like amusement that we're kind of entitled to these days yeah. are all so prescient and so well executed. But then in the middle of it, you've got Jim Carrey making donkey faces, mm. just nonstop mugging and like over the top and for me like he comes he comes so close to ruining that film uh, and he he it's like he try he's trying as hard as he can to ruin that film which is such a smart movie
1: yeah.
0: uh if there was uh, the thing that was going around recently on twitter about uh pick a film take one actor out of it replace everybody else with muppets mm. uh i i want i want this film take him out replace him with a muppet it would be less filially and it would be a better movie <laughs>
1: mm. Wow. Uh, I'm mostly with you. I think I'm not as harsh on him in that movie because there's just kind of an innocence to his performance that's crucial. Uh, but I don't want to get too far off of track sure, of, of, of Gallipoli here because the Truman Show does feel not very much like uh Well,
2: well maybe this is a, a good segue to talk about the Mel Gibson of it all since we're talking about
3: it reminded Edgar me of how much a... I liked Mel Gibson at a time, you know? And, and like, yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to sort out, like, how much has that's been, you know, overshadowed by what we know about him now. But I, I still find, I mean, you know, these these early performances, Mad Max, I mean, he's just so charismatic and naturally appealing and just has an ease about him. I mean, it's kind of Harrison Ford-like in some ways, but without, mm-hmm. like, sort of pretensions of coolness. I don't know, pretensions is the wrong word, but well, like without the... the... He's
0: not as, like, hardened or cynical. Yes. He seems, yeah, exactly. he seems self-effacing in yes. a way that he yeah. hasn't a very long time
3: yeah exactly i mean i i we could we could go into where it went wrong for him and how much has to do with his personal life you know he's become
1: self-effacing again (laughs) if you look at dried across concrete but like yeah was a period from lethal weapon to on it seemed like it was just like he he became a star and it kind of changed him and he he became sort of more self conscious mm-hmm. you know sort of jokey more had a greater sense of his own cuteness in a lot of ways that were kind of annoying um but it's not present here he's not a star yet he's just a you know beautiful charismatic blue eyed dude and, and he's also
3: he's also one of those people that. You know, for obvious reasons, I've been watching a lot of Nicolas Cage movies, and, and the young Nicolas Cage looks like Nicolas Cage, but I think if you showed um, this era of, of Mel Gibson someone, it would take him just a couple minutes, to play, yeah. if you didn't know who it was, it'd take him a little bit to piece together who it was.
0: He also just feels more like a person than Mark Lee as Archie. Like, Archie just feels like a little like an angel come to life. You know, he's got those he's a striking sweet boy. eyes and such a sweet boy. the yeah. golden mm-hmm. hair and the and the tan, and, and he's like... He's He's so full of conviction. He's so full of his his own power and his own confidence. Uh, he spends so much of the movie looking at Mel Gibson like, why aren't you a better man? Mm. And... Like Frank, by comparison, just feels like more like a more like a natural person, more like a person who has a way to go to achieve perfection. You know, somebody who hasn't yet gotten over his fears and found his confidence, and he he makes he makes some pretty bad mistakes in this movie. Uh, And Archie just kind of like floats along untouchably through it accomplishing everything he wants achieving everything he wants we see him experience doubt in the lake briefly we see him experiencing uh sadness a little bit but even at the very end of the movie he seems of all of the the men about to go over the edge like the least afraid um archie yeah
1: yeah i mean i there's i I love the contrast between these two characters i mean that's kind of what gives the film a certain spark archie I, I like that there's kind of an unbroken integrity and dignity to the to that character that carries him all the way to the metaphorical finish line at, at the at the end. It, it's so beautifully bookended by the race where he, he's talking to his, his his trainer and going through all the, the 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 bit about you know his his legs being like steel springs and he's gonna be as fast as a leopard and uh, <laughs> and all that stuff and and for him to kind of go through that ritual again before leaving the trenches is uh it's it's moving and and uh you know maybe it doesn't give him a lot of dimension as a character he's not a troubled character or, or a character who's filled with a lot of self-doubt but it does give him integrity and spirit and kind of is you know, symbolically important to what this film is trying to get at. I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's
3: just being unformed is kind of what defines him in some ways. Like being undefined, because he does doesn't get a chance to turn into a man. I mean, I watched this film a few weeks ago, and I didn't have time to rewatch the whole thing before this podcast. But I watched uh, a good chunk of it, and knowing where it's going, you I know, mean, watching it twice in quick succession or relatively quick succession, the the scenes with his uncle Jack, his uncle slash trainer played by played Bill Kerr, his you know warning him off the war, his goodbye to him where he knows what's coming, the jungle book scene. But also, you realize he never gives his parents a proper goodbye. You know, yeah. he just says goodbye, mom, and then never sees them again because he heads off to war. I mean, it is it is heartbreaking stuff, and it's so well played. Uh, Bill Kerr, really, I li- really uh, love his yeah, stuff in, he's this, great. in this movie. Too. And, he, and I just looked him up. He, he only died in 2014. He lived till the age of 92 and <laughs> a- acted. Pretty much up till the end, too.
0: Yeah, there's also man. There's an interesting parallel between the uh, the the reading uh, Jungle Book scene and the the playing Adagio at the end. Just that sense of like a a piece of art being performed and and people kind of gathering around mm-hmm. to to take a breath and experience it. I hadn't really drawn this connection, but reading up on this film, I see a lot of people pointing out that the chunk of the jungle book that we hear is about Mowgli's coming of age. It's about him transitioning into manhood with, uh, with weeping and pain, which is sort of what the whole movie is. I hadn't really fully made that connection. But yeah, I mean, Archie's literally too good for this world. I mean, when it comes down to it in the end, the reason that Frank lives and Archie dies is because Archie gave up a safe place as a runner to make sure Frank would survive. And he did it because he wanted, he still had that conviction. He wanted to fight. He didn't want to be left behind. But he never takes credit for it. He never points it out to Frank. Like He dies with Frank not knowing he made this choice, that he made this in a way sacrifice. I think
2: there's also a connection to Archie being an an athlete. He views fighting for his country almost as another way of like pushing himself toward greatness in the same way that he pushes himself toward greatness in in his racing. And I think the way that he approaches war, I mean, it's right there in in the final shot that, you know, evocative of him crossing the finish line of a race. I think there is something in the way that Archie approaches running and dedication to that, that translates to how he approaches war and his role in it is something that he is is pushing himself to do and to achieve. And the, there's a contrast there in how Frank uh, uh, approaches his, his running, which is kind of mercenary, you know, like he, he bets on himself. He's doing it to make money, not because he is trying to prove something to himself or to, to other people.
0: Well, there's a lot of different different kinds of, of striving and decision-making in this movie that all kind of have to do with the idea of, of being a young and reckless man. I'm, I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on what, if anything, we're specifically getting at here about young male friendships or young male decision-making or young male sacrifice. It's so much of the movie is just about what it's like to be this age and, and to have this level of uh, conviction or doubt. And it, I, it kind of fascinates me.
1: I mean, innocence is a big deal in this movie, I, I think. I mean, there's a naivete that comes along with it, but also um, a purity, too, of intent, particularly on Ar- Archie's part. And, and it's, it's something that the film emphasizes and preserves in a way structurally by giving you so little of war. They don't have, you know, be, you know if, if half of the action takes place on the battlefield... Not even um, half. No, I'm just saying that if it, if oh, right, it did, right. yeah, you know, and if it were just reserved for the end, maybe they'd have experiences that would sully them in some way, or or they'd have to make decisions, or maybe kill someone, or do something like that that would that would uh, tarnish our image, uh impression of them. But they don't have that. This is a, they they are innocent little lambs who are led to the mm-hmm. led to the slaughter, and uh, which is the story of World War One. And it's a story you see re- repeatedly in in World War One movies, which are often very strongly anti-war, emphatically anti-war, because it was all about sending young people to the slaughter, and then when they died, sending even younger younger <laughs> men to the slaughter. Yeah. Um, so um, I think I think the film has a lot of integrity in that. It's respect. got the whole
3: thing about eighteen and nineteen year olds are enlisting, you know, and there's a there's a point, there's a reason that's that. I mean, I think it's kind of hard for us right now to get our head around what it was like, especially, you know, I I can, I only know the statistics for Britain, but I mean, Britain lost a third of a generation of men. I mean, just, just, it's an unthinkable loss just for what that does to a culture. And then think of all the people that came back with these horrible war experiences. It it is, it changes, you know, the way of a nation thinks of itself when something like that happens. And, and, you know, the idea of 250,000, people dying on that on that side dying in gallipoli <laughs> for a feudal fight and and like as we were talking about before i mean you know we're we're ignorant and 100 years later but i mean what was world war one about you know i right. mean i mean i know basically what it was about but it was, it's hard to contrast it as sort they of they don't know either I yeah mean, that was the that yeah, insight. Right.
1: that's the insight you get from that peter jackson documentary what is it they shall not grow old yeah which is kind of like almost a chorus of of uh, voices from World War One, and and I, none of them really know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just doing their duty. They're they're doing what they're being told to do. And it's for the country, and that's what, and they're available to do it. And um, boy, when you that when innocence is lost, it's in, it's lost in a profoundly horrifying way. Yeah, uh,
3: I mean, World War One is your go-to for a film about the futility of war. World War Two is a fil- your go-to for a film about the necessity of war. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I mean, I wouldn't want to fight in any war, but reading descriptions of World War I is one of the last ones I would want to fight in. Cause it's just the idea of being in these horrible trenches for so long between battles like we witnessed in this, which are for a few inches and which, you know, men lay down their lives for, for very little at all. Yeah.
0: And I think the movie does a really spectacular job of drawing uh, Archie as someone like whenever he talks about the war and his responsibility in war, he talks in propaganda blurbs. Mm. You know, he he talks about the horrors of the savage hun or they're going to come over here and, and take our land like he, he's talking in newspaper sound bites. essentially. It's very clear that he doesn't really know anything about the history or, or the geography or the stakes, and he doesn't have any personal stakes in any of this. He's been fed a bunch of boys' propaganda, basically, but he believes it so with such conviction, with such deep emotional conviction. It feels admirable, but at the same time, as a, a grown-ass adult, you kind of look at it and think, uh, you know, <laughs> you need to educate yourself or you're going to get killed. Care- Oh, uh, I
1: wait. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the story of all wars. That's how. That's. I mean, they're always going to be. It's, it doesn't take a whole lot to get people riled up. I, not, not to insult them at all. I mean, because it's, it's you know, you, if you feel a pride and a love of country and in a genuine sense that your freedom or identity as a nation is at stake, I mean that you're, you're going to want to fight for that. You know, and it's a responsibility of leadership to make good decisions on your behalf
0: well speaking of getting all riled up we should wrap soon but we really can't until we talk about the music and particularly about the uh the electronic music uh brought in during the running scenes the jean-michel jarret excerpts that uh i think the noises that we're hearing are meant to evoke springs like the the springs of his legs Mm -hmm. propelling him like a leopard across the track but they really really sound like zappy laser effects and it's ah kind of comic no, uh, as far no, as I'm I, concerned no, you, you no, love I, it you're into
3: it I think it's like trance like I mean I, I really <laughs> I mean I like that album a lot which our, our friend Jason Heller wrote about in his book Strange Stars which is about the connections between music and science fiction in the 70s and obviously the original context is supposed to be more spacey and, and, and that kind of way but I think it really works for those long especially the, the 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 scenes the early scenes where you get all this to us at least our eyes exotic and strange looking australian uh uh landscapes uh um, and i i don't know, it works for me I, I i mean obviously it's it's of the time when when since we're much more prominent on, on soundtracks no matter no matter what era it was set in but i to me it works
0: Scott Gervue Zappy Zappy thoughts.
2: <laughs> it's
1: the 80s, you know. Yeah. yeah.
2: I found it a little distracting the first time it happened, but then when I realized it was just like the running motif uh, it, it just became part of the fabric of the film and the the nineteen eighty one ness of the film.
3: And I'm gonna say me, I'm so. gonna say to uh, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is the same year, though. I guess it, it was kind of a thing. You you put you put running you know running in the early part of the twentieth century to to electronic music. If, oh, if you're making right. a Movie then.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, but does Chariots of Fire have uh, have spring spring slash laser noises?
3: Hmm. Good question. I haven't watched. Oh, you know, you before. know,
1: you know that score. Right. I, I know the two.
0: <laughs> I was afraid we were going to go here. <laughs> oh, oh, one
3: more thing before we move on. Uh, I I am greatly amused by the Robert a, a film by Robert Stigwood and Rupert Murdoch. What a what is, yeah. what, what a wow, team
0: <laughs> Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, was it Murdoch's father or grandfather that was a uh, was a veteran, like a, a no. journalist during World War One? Yeah, I think it was father, and had a lot of stories that they drew on for this. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly a name to have uh, pop up in the credits.
3: I mean, Stigwood, of course, is the is a famous music producer. He managed the Bee Gees. He produced the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and the Grease soundtrack. So, so
0: just think, instead of zappy laser noises, we could have had disco it as he's running across have- the. Have, could have across the outback
3: yeah did
1: yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> that, that Beethoven right the a fifth of Beethoven yeah, yeah that's a good one yeah sure Great oh stuff.
0: man well uh, we should move on to feedback and I'm like so here I'm certainly <laughs> looking forward to uh, listener feedback <laughs> oh, just... on uh the jukebox Scott's <laughs> rendition of, of <laughs> 80s soundtracks <laughs> uh, but for the moment we're gonna we're gonna cut away from this and we'll be right back with feedback <laughs> it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Now, every week, we ask you to call us and leave a short voicemail, and every week, very few of you do. But here's a voicemail specifically prompted by Keith's foray into the new director's cut of Vim Vendors Until the End of the World, and it poses some intriguing questions.
3: After reading uh, Keith's article on director's cuts, uh, I'm wondering, what do you guys think is the best way to approach a five-hour director's cut? Specifically, uh, until the end of the world, the Criterion
1: release. How many sittings do you watch it in? Just curious, what you guys think of this uh, trivial time allotment question?
3: So, I think the ideal circumstance is with any movie is to see it in a theater. But that's and and then I think the second best way is to carve out time, sit in a darkened room with no interruptions, and, and put your phone in the other room and, and just, just watch the film straight through, and in this case, all five hours of it. Now, is there that what know. I did? No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I, I Don't suppose, you have a
0: kid and a rambunctious yeah, a
3: dog? A kid, a dog, a you know, other distractions. So I did watch in two uninterrupted sittings, which is rare they actually get to do that. Um, I you know I, I'm a purist at heart, but I will, uh, you know, I watch movies interrupted all the time, even shorter movies, because I, I, I we're, we're all friends here. I, I take I take movies on my iPad to the gym, and I watch I oh, watch it, I watch the first hour there. I watch <laughs> oh, the wait sli- for the first time,
1: like the first like first viewing of these Sometimes, things.
3: Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, you uh, offended. I, I have film
1: purists like, got to like, like good films, not like like not like just like I. I mean, I try do not to watch. Little or I try whatever, to watch. Con- no,
3: I, I'll try not to watch sixteen by nine films, but I think anything in, in, in a full screen aspect ratio. I'm fine with Mm. um I have a very busy life and I have to manage my time carefully and I watch a lot of movies and if I need to watch them all I need to to work in you know them in as every place as possible so and at the gym I can just stand there and stare at the screen it's not the biggest screen it's not as good as my tv but I have my headphones on total concentration apart from moving my legs up and down um and so i watch first hour there watch second hour at home I I I get in where I can, you know. So, I
1: mean- so let's let's say let's say. Have I started another Winter, controversy? Let's say Winter Light by Bergman. You're at the gym.
3: I would sure. You're, I would watch that at the gym. I I would watch that at the gym. It's <laughs> it's um a lot of close ups in Bergman. You know you you don't have like you don't have like, like a you're like
1: moving up and down right. You're actually no, you're working out, aren't you? It's you're just, not just my like legs. Sitting there. Just my
3: legs. It's not like I'm bouncing up and down on a on, a, on a trampoline or oh. anything. No, <laughs> it's
0: it's here. so good to see this level of so, vitriol aimed at someone who is not me. Here, here,
3: I want I want to say two things here. <laughs> I like to watch movies. Uh huh. I don't want to die young. Uh-huh. So let's 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 try to combine these activities in some way. Yeah, no, I I make no apologies. I have a nice iPad. It's fine. It's fine. Watch movies where you can, when you can, and, and as many break it up into as many pieces as you have to. But no more pieces than you have to. I think that's my advice. Oh man. Yeah. Scott. Am I still allowed to be on this podcast? What, what is
0: what's I'm the shot. ideal way to watch I'm a,
1: a five-hour movie, Scott? Sitting down, you know, sitting down and watching for five hours. Yeah, but <laughs> how often do well, you five hours? Five hours. Is, five hours is difficult. I get it, but I was I was grateful for the opportunity to see the Irishman in three and a half hours. Sure, that was great. The I mean, we
3: had we had a we could sit there in a the theater with no interruptions right. in and yeah, the I best mean, possible it circumstances. Means, it means
1: something. It means something to see films in that it, but in that do, way.
3: Yes, if you can't do it that way. Do it another way. That's my take yeah, on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it depends you, on the film. You, you know what
3: I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about.
1: I'm talking about, about, gym. I'm talking about it,
3: but a gym movie, though. I'm trying to work the crowd here. I'm talking about gym <laughs> movies.
1: Like, like you know, like Six Underground. I, I could watch that in a gym.
3: Okay. All right. But, well, you know, why would but you, I'm not why watch do that. I'm watching
1: First Reformed in the gym.
3: Yeah. Right? When, sure. No. For the first I'd, time? I'd prefer not to, but if it's the only time I can do it, then absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Well, as the moderator, I'm going to say that we're not going to answer this question anytime soon, because we're butting up against the realities of the world. And we've got uh, kind of a, a nice little Gallipoli thing going. We've got our, our purest idealist here oh. and our practical man uh, who sees the realities of the world. And they're probably gonna, both going to get killed by the end of this podcast, <laughs> as I predicted in the intro. So we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us and tell us why Keith's way of watching movies is terribly wrong or terribly practical and uh, not worth insulting. You can leave another short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Well, that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll head back down into those shaky trenches for a look at Sam Mendes's 1917. It'll be up next Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your podcatcher of choice. In the meantime, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash show Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash show And follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, pass the fruit salts. No, not the bath salts, those are really different.